Well, good afternoon. Let's look to the Lord in prayer together. Father, thank you so much for the word we've heard already today. Thank you for the good fellowship with your people. And we pray now as we seek to further study the truth that you've revealed to us in Holy Scripture that you would bless us and that this would be unto our edification for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we're talking about the theological virtues. And we get this partly from uh, one text in particular, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where the Apostle Paul tells us, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And we want to keep in mind that these are connected and that it's impossible to have one without the other. So, with that being the case, I'm just going to, I'm going to put a dash between each one of them. Faith, hope, love, they are different things. We have to distinguish them, but we cannot have one without the other. It's all or nothing. Last Lord's Day, we considered the moral virtues. They could also be called the cardinal virtues, simply means hinge virtues. And we saw how that they're acquired by habit, that we have to practice these to grow in them, and we don't just uh, practice virtue automatically, a moral virtue. But with the theological virtue, it's not acquired by habit. Uh, we don't do a certain thing over and over uh, to acquire the virtue of faith. Uh, for instance, one of the moral virtues that you can help your children to cultivate, in, at least in their imitation of that virtue, is if you have a child that's terrified of everything. For instance, maybe they're terrified of the water. You put them in the pool with a life jacket on. They're, they're scared to death. You let go of them. They're floating there for, for two seconds, and they're screaming. Even though they're floating, they're just fine. They're scared to death of it. If you help them cultivate the moral virtue of fortitude in that, you could let them float next time maybe five seconds, next time maybe ten seconds, and little by little working with them to overcome that fear. Next thing you know, uh, they may be swimming and they may be running and diving into the water without any fear. I mean, I've witnessed that myself in, in uh, one of our children. What they did was they acquired more fortitude by habit, being habituated in that over time. With faith, hope, and love, we don't do something to acquire these by habit. Rather, they are infused. And we saw the illustration of this last time that it was like a blood transfusion. Think about the health of your body. There are things you can do, like certain diet and exercise, to try to help the health of your body. That's like acquired virtue or moral virtue. But if you're bleeding out and you're going to die and you need a blood transfusion, this is a type of infusion. This is totally different. This is not something you acquire by habit. It's something that's freely given to you and done for you from outside of you. And that is what the theological virtues are like is that infusion or, or transfusion. And the moment you're regenerated, God infuses into you these three virtues of faith, hope, and love. Just a few reasons uh, for looking at this today, a few 
of the main purposes of this study. If we can understand the theological virtues and how they relate to the powers of the soul, the human soul, it'll be like viewing a slow motion replay uh, of a football game. You know how with uh, football players in part of their preparation to play against another team, they'll watch replays of that team and how they play, or they'll watch their own footage and see what they're doing right or doing wrong. They'll play it back over and over in slow motion. You can notice details of what's happening that you would have never noticed otherwise. If we can do this concerning our salvation and get a better grasp and a better understanding of what God worked in us in regeneration and what he is still working in us, it'll help us. It'll help us better understand and appreciate that salvation of God's work in us. It'll help us avoid error about our salvation. And it'll encourage us to participate in the one and only way that we grow in theological virtue. So, when we consider these three, they're throughout Scripture. They're all over the New Testament. It's not just 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where the apostle yokes together faith, hope, and love. But we find it places like 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Paul says they're remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope, the, the hope of salvation. Galatians 5.5-6 5, 5 For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of the righteous by faith for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love Hebrews 6 10 to 12 names this triad of love hope and faith in that order first Peter 1 8 whom having not seen talking about Christ whom having not seen you love though now you do not see him yet believing that's faith you rejoice that's hope with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's not just verses like this that connect faith, hope, and love, but the entire book of Hebrews may very well likely be a transcribed sermon, and it's very likely that it is organized along the lines of faith, hope, and love. Hebrews 11 being the hall of faith, and then on from there. So, this is throughout Scripture, and we're reminded that, as I said earlier, these virtues are all or nothing. If you have true saving faith in Christ, you also hope in Christ, and you love Christ, and you love others. And isn't this what the epistle of James teaches, that if a man says he has faith, but he doesn't have works, that's love, then the faith is dead. A faith that doesn't work by love is a dead faith. So these are connected and that can never be divorced, though we have to distinguish them. The reason they're called theological virtues is because they have God as their immediate object. Theological speaks of God and the knowledge of God. And while the cardinal virtues can be directed 
immediately toward neighbor, though always ultimately towards God. The theological virtues are oriented directly to God, and this is why they're called theological. So we'll start by looking at faith. We know that the author of faith is the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 is one of many texts that teaches this, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. The difference between the Thessalonians and other people that heard the gospel and rejected it was the Holy Spirit begot faith in their heart as they heard it and they believed. Acts 16.14, speaking of Lydia, it says of her, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Holy Spirit implants faith at regeneration, enabling you to believe. And this is the giver of it, the Holy Spirit himself. If we wanted to give a definition to faith, we could define it this way. Uh, William Ames defines it this way. Faith is a virtue whereby we, cleaving to the faithfulness of God, do lean upon him that we may obtain that which he reveals to us. Faith is basically that you believe God and all God reveals. That you take it to be true. All that, all that God is, you, you believe and trust him and all that he has revealed. There's more to it than this, but we'll unpack that as we go. You can think of faith as the empty hand that grasps Christ. Remember the, the hymn, In my hand no price I bring, simply thy cross I cling. We heard about it this morning with the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee's coming to God with full hands, full of his good works, and he's unjustified. The sinner comes to God crying out, God be merciful to me. A sinner, empty-handed, nothing to offer, and God justifies him. So it's the empty hand that clings to Christ. There are five different kinds of faith, and only one of them is saving. The first is that when we say faith, we could mean the whole teaching of the gospel. Basically like the Christian faith. We confess this every time when we read the creed. Jude 3 uses it this way when he says that he found it necessary. He says, I found it necessary to write, exhorting you to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. This is the objective body of truth, the faith. But you could confess this faith, the Christian faith, and you could say, oh yes, I believe every bit of that's true and still not be saved. Then there's historical faith. James 2.19 expresses Something akin to this when he says, you believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the devils believe, or even the demons believe and tremble. So, the demons of hell know the truth of God that God has revealed. And they know God immediately, and yet none of them are saved. And we could do the same, is what James is telling us, if we just had a historical faith. Believing, maybe the historical accounts of the gospel, maybe believing, or or the gospels, believing, uh, yes, Jesus Christ died for sinners, etc. As a historical fact, we can believe that and still be lost. And there is a temporary faith. 
It seems at first like a true faith, but really it never was. And Jesus talks about this with the four different kinds of soil where the seed is sown in the parable. He says in Luke 8.13, uh, 8, but the ones or the seeds on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Somebody that seems as though they've been converted, but they don't last over time. They don't continue to believe on Christ. Therefore, it proves they never truly believed on him to start with. This is a temporary faith. The fourth kind of faith is a miraculous faith. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13 too. This is the belief in miracles or the belief that God can do miracles. Maybe even that God could do a miracle through us. This is miraculous faith. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. So here again, Paul is telling us that whatever the kind of faith is that he claims to have, if he doesn't have love, then it is a false faith. This is part of the implication of this text. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 22, there will be many stand before him at the last day that will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus will profess them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They believed they could do wonders in Jesus' name. They, believed they had a miraculous faith. And yet they're unconverted. But when we speak of faith, and when we speak of this virtue of faith, we almost always have in mind this fifth kind, and this is justifying faith. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we talk about this saving faith, it has three parts. And the first is knowledge. You can think, of, think about this, think about it like a doctor's visit. You go to the doctor, you've been having a pain, he diagnoses you, he tells you, here's the problem, you, you have cancer, and that you have cancer in this specific part of your body, and this specific kind of cancer. He gives you the prognosis. He tells you, after the diagnosis, he gives you the prognosis and says, this is what we're going to have to do about it if you're going to have any chance. This is what you've got to do. And then there is before you the, the path of either using the medicine or not using the medicine. But when you hear the doctor's diagnosis, think of this like God's word to you in the law. The preaching of law and gospel. God shows you what you are as a sinner. And he shows you what God has done in Christ for sinners. And in this first part of faith, you know this to be the truth. You, you, you understand it and know what is being said. And this knowledge must be first in, in faith before you can actually trust in Christ. You have to know who Christ is. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans ten fourteen? How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So before we can trust in Christ, we have to know about Christ. We have to know the truth of the gospel. This doesn't mean we have to know it comprehensively. It could be a very simple, childlike, basic understanding. But there will be a knowledge of the gospel. This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12 concerning this knowledge of faith. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. This, among other reasons, the fact that this, this knowledge is the first part of faith, this is one reason that preaching must be plain. It, preaching must be so that the hearers know exactly what is being said. They may not agree with it. They may not like it. But it ought to always be that it's so plain that it can be understood by the hearers because it's impossible for them to have faith in Christ until they do know and understand the basic truth of the gospel. But it goes beyond this. It's not just knowing the truth of the gospel. But it is assent or agreement with the gospel. This is where the doctor has given you the diagnosis and prognosis. And you agree, yes, that's true. And I believe it's true about me. I believe what you're telling me. This is when we give our agreement to God's truth that we hear. This is the receiving of God's testimony, as Paul said of the Thessalonians 2.13, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectually works in you who believe. So, you hear the truth, you know what it is, you understand what the gospel is, you receive it as the truth. But then there is a third beyond this, beyond assent, there is trust. Trust will, will be like when the doctor's giving you the diagnosis and the prognosis, you actually, you actually take the medicine, you actually take the treatment he's told you in the prognosis. There was a Dutch further reformed a theologian in the 1500s up until the early 1600s, Godfridus Udemans, he, he wrote a whole work on faith, hope, and love, and I'll be drawing from him several times. But he tells us that faith consists of firmly taking hold of God's promises and appropriating them to our souls. That's what this is, this trust. This is the patient taking the medicine and ingesting the medicine that the doctor says will save him. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And this is the foundation of faith. The foundation of it is God's word. This is the only foundation of faith. So what we've been looking at in the two lessons before this is what may be known of God and may be known of morality or natural law by the light of nature okay what can be known of god by nature and what can be known of our duty to god and man in nature 
That's not of faith. You can know that apart from faith. You can know that by the light of natural reason. That's what light of nature means, light of reason. But these things that we're talking about, the truth of the gospel and trusting in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, this cannot be known except by faith. Scripture, and except by God revealing it especially, and he reveals it so in Scripture. The defect of faith is unbelief. You remember how we saw with the moral virtues, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude, each one is the mean or like the middle of the road between two extremes. You've got the defect and excess. Well, with the theological virtues, there is no excess because God is the immediate object of it. You can't have too much faith in God. You can't believe God too much. You can't love God too much. You can't hope in God too much. So there is no extreme. There's only defect. So if you don't have this, then the defect of faith is unbelief. And Revelation 21.8 tells us the unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You can think about it in its relation to the acquired virtues, which is the moral virtues we saw last week or cardinal virtues. Another acquired virtue set is the intellectual virtues, which we didn't look at. But we think of those virtues that are known by the light of nature as compared to faith. How does it compare? Well, let's think about it in light of the powers of the soul. Um, Two things that constitute the image of God in man that sets man apart from the lower animal creation. What are those two things? I'm going to I'm going to draw I'm going to draw our man here. What what are the two powers of the soul that constitute the image of God in man? Yes, so knowledge of God and then righteousness is to the well-being of the image of God in man because even after man loses his original righteousness he still is an image bearer. So with knowledge, remember man's soul has the powers of intellect and will. So the knowledge pertains to intellect. And then concerning will, this is the ability to love God. So the fact that man has intellect means he can know God. The fact that he has will means he can love God. This is something no lower creature can do. It's impossible. Uh, Animals can't know or love God like this in this capacity. Only humans can properly do that. And angels. But as far as the lower creation. So, in relation to the other virtues... Faith perfects the intellect. It pertains especially to the intellect. We'll see how that hope and love pertain to the will, what we desire. But faith pertains primarily to the intellect. And when we hear that, we don't need to think intellectual or uh, like intellectualism. Uh, You can be human without being a humanist. Um, 
and we have intellect. Intellectualism is when we place natural reason above God's word. It's not that, but it is that faith perfects the intellect. God gave humans an intellect partly for the very reason that they can understand and trust what God says. So, this is, this is why we confess in our Second London Confession, as faith is distinct from the other theological virtues, this is how it's distinct. So let's just pause for a moment. We have to always distinguish faith, hope, and love. If we, if we mix these together, we lose them all. If we separate them, we lose them all. We have to keep them connected, but we can't mix them up. We have to distinguish them. That's one of the most uh, useful phrases that Francis Turton uses is, we distinguish. You'll find it throughout his institutes. We distinguish, we distinguish. We've got to distinguish between these. And faith is separate from love in this way. Faith, uh, our second line of confession, 11.2, faith thus, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So what we're confessing is that Scripture teaches that true faith, wherein God perfects our intellect, when we say perfect, we don't mean that we've reached a state of perfect thinking in this life. That's not what we mean. We mean it's, it's, He's brought it to its intended purpose, its full intended purpose. God redeems us in our intellect, but also in our, our will. So hope and love that come along with it. But in this, hope and love are not the instrumental cause or the instrument of saving, of, of justifi- uh, justification. We're justified by faith only. But it's not a faith that's alone. That faith only whereby we're justified always has hope and love with it. If we get it mixed up and think we're justified by love, we'll lose the gospel, justified by good works or our desire for God. If we think we're justified with hope as the instrument of justification, we'll lose the gospel. And you'll hear sloppy, if not downright dangerous phrases like justified by joy. Okay, basically what that's saying is, if we're justified by joy... That is making hope the instrument of justification instead of faith, and we're, we're in danger of losing the gospel. Okay, so let's think about how we grow in faith. How do we grow in it? One way. It's one way we grow in faith. If anybody remembers from the sermon series a little while ago, uh, few weeks ago somebody tell me what's the one way we grow in the theological virtues it's participation in the means of grace word and sacrament and prayer so participation in the means of grace is the only way 
that we grow in faith, hope, and love. And this is one reason, see, we want to be faithful to the public worship on Lord's Days, church worship. We want to be faithful to that, yes, because God has commanded us to do it. But also, as is with every other command of God, it's not just a bare command that God has commanded us. It is good for our souls. It is eternally beneficial to us. And we are missing out on something highly important and highly necessary for the Christian life when we miss out on the means of grace. Um, If you're going to fly over the Atlantic Ocean and say you're going to fly to Britain and you're on a three-engine plane, would you rather fly that plane if all three engines are running or if only one is running? You could make it to Britain on one engine, but you'll be a whole lot better off with all three. Uh, You could technically survive if you just ate one regular meal a day of what you're eating right now. You could survive for a long time, but isn't it much better to flourish and eat at the various appropriate times and eat all that you need? Well, this is how it is with the means of grace, and I, I continue to encourage you. I know sometimes it's difficult. I know sometimes you have to wrestle the kids. I know sometimes you have to repent of that spat you got in with your, with your spouse on the way to church. You feel like turning around and going back. You feel so backslid. You don't know, uh, you know, I don't know if I should even go today. I encourage you, come on. Don't ever let that turn you back. You need the means of grace all the more on that day. And Satan knows that God mightily strengthens you. Sometimes you don't, a lot, most of the time probably, we don't perceive it. It's not like we, we go to church and we hear the sermon and then have the Lord's Supper and participate in the, the prayers and the, and the worship of God through singing and all of that. And then we go home and say, oh, okay, wow, God just, God just brought me ten steps forward and I'm this much more mature than I was. I'm 10 points more mature than I was before this Sunday. It's not like that. It's kind of like this. Uh, What did you have for supper Tuesday four months ago on on this week of the month four months ago? You couldn't tell me. I guarantee you couldn't tell me unless you have the same thing every Tuesday. (laughs) If you did, we could switch it to another one that you don't have the same thing. You don't remember what you ate but it contributed to your health and strength, and you're here today partly because of that which you ate. And I encourage you, keep on participating in the means of grace. Do it doggedly. I mean, stubborn up on it against yourself, against your own wicked inclinations that we all have to to want to be fearful or to be discouraged with ourselves or with others and stay back. I encourage you, Make use of the means of grace. God grows your faith this way. And I want to give you some encouragements, and I'm just going to go ahead and end with this and leave some time for discussion. We'll pick up hope and love at a a different time. I'm just going to cover faith today. So, let me give you a few encouragements. Okay, we confess in our second line of confession, 14.1, that this faith although it be in different degrees and may be weak or strong, 
yet it is the least degree of it different in kind or nature, as is all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. So basically what we're confessing is the teaching of Scripture that one Christian may have a strong faith, another Christian may have an extremely weak faith. But even that weakest faith is a saving faith. Uh, it's kind of like the sailor that was in a shipwreck. And he was able to climb onto a, a large boulder at, at the edge of the shore. And he clung to that boulder throughout the night as the, as the waves crashed over him. The rescue party found him the next day and they asked him, how did you fare through the night? He said, I, I shook like a leaf all night, but the rock never moved. Okay, he had a weak faith in that strong rock, and it saved him. You may have a weak, trembling faith in Christ, the weakest faith you could imagine, the smallest faith. But if that faith is in Christ, it's in the right object, and that is justifying faith. And you are saved, and you will be saved even with that weak faith and by the instrument of that faith which lays hold of Christ. Okay, so a weak faith in a believer is not the same as a temporary faith in an unbeliever. So be encouraged in this. As Jesus said, O ye of, of little faith, yet still you do have faith. So we confess, uh, continuing in this, this thought, uh, yet it gets the victory, this, this faith gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So uh, this reminds us again that full assurance of faith in Christ may take time. It may take a long time for some people. It may take years. That was my experience as a, as a new believer but take heart, dear Christian, that this faith grows. God grows you by degrees in it. Godfridus Udemans reminds us that we should pause here to remember what was said before about knowledge and assent. So, knowledge, assent, and then trust. So, concerning knowledge and assent. That trust, though genuine, is not perfect in the believer. It is still being tested by many infirmities. Although these trials may vary from day to day, we must earnestly pray each day, Lord, increase our faith. Luke 17, 5. Lord, increase our faith. This trust is therefore referred to as the beginning of our confidence. Hebrews three fourteen. Nonetheless, however small this measure of confidence it is, unfeigned or it's a sincere faith and stands on solid ground it can uphold our souls and strengthen them against all temptation and doubt and a good example of this we find in apostle peter where jesus prayed for him said that i've prayed for you that your faith fail not and even though simon peter greatly failed in his thrice denial of christ and he went as, as low and lower than he could have ever imagined. Yet he kept believing on Christ. And he didn't, 
He didn't deny Christ after this. It wasn't a permanent denial of Christ. Christ had prayed for him, and Christ prays for you, dear believer, that your faith not, will fail not. And he who granted you this gift of faith will not allow this faith to finally fail or go away. He will keep you believing on Christ all the way to glory when faith is no longer needed because faith will turn to sight and hope is no longer needed because what you've hoped for now you've attained in glory and only love will remain, which is why Paul tells us that the greatest of these is love.